Well, good evening, everyone. It's really good to see you all. I know that our attendance is a little lower than normal, but uh, I know that some of our uh, some of our people are helping Lighthouse Bible Church out with uh, babysitting. Uh, so we're grateful for them being willing to sacrifice their time and their energy to uh, help a, a fellow church out. Uh, when it comes uh, to their church family retreat. Hopefully we can have one soon. Uh, and if not a church family retreat, maybe a joint heirs one, if uh, you guys would like to do that. Well, uh, it really is a joy to be uh, back with you here on, on a Friday night. I think, well, it's been, it's, it just feels like it's been a little, a little while. So I'm really uh, glad to be able to worship with you all again. And uh, yeah, it's good to have our high schoolers here, as Alex said. Uh, even though you might not know some of them, it's good for us to be able to uh, get to know our life students because they will eventually come up uh, to, um, to join us here at Join Heirs. But it's just good for us in general just to be mindful of uh, who is in our church, whether they're younger than us or even older than us as well. We, uh, we as a church body, are uh, called to be unified, right, to, to care for one another, to love one another. And so uh, even though uh, they might be... Um, even though uh, it might have been a while since you've been in high school and you're kind of like, I don't even know like, how to relate with them, uh, it is uh, still uh, you know, good for us to at least relate with them on a people level, right? Um, just to, hey, how are you doing? Uh, what's your name? You know, that kind of stuff. So I encourage you in that way. Um, well, with that being said, uh, this evening we are returning to our dating series. Uh, we're going to have a uh, basically a four-part mini-series within our dating series uh, over issues of purity. So today, we're going to be discussing purity in general, uh, so it shouldn't be anything too new for all of you, uh, and it'll be followed in the, in the coming weeks by the topics of guarding your heart in multiple ways, uh, failing sexually, and the practice of pursuing purity. Okay, so it's a four-part mini-series, but it's an important one. Now, some of you might be asking, why are we embarking on a four-part miniseries on purity when we're supposed to be talking about dating? Right? What does purity have to do with dating? Well, it has everything to do with dating. Right? It's, it's uh, basically, you know, if, if you're not pure now, or if you're not focusing on trying to become more like Christ now, when you're single, or even while you're dating, and it's going to translate to issues later. Um, you know, when it comes to guarding our heart, we're not just talking about the actions um, that uh, we want to avoid, but we also want to think about the thoughts and the, 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 the deeply-seated beliefs that are in our hearts that lead us to pursuing certain actions. And, you know, while there are some people in our congregation who I'm sure have done well in keeping themselves pure, I also wouldn't be surprised if some of you at some point in your lives have failed sexually. Right? And so how do we deal with the consequences of that? Right? Is there hope? Yes, there is. Right? There is hope. There is hope for that. Right? And, and these are all important considerations for us uh, to, to think about even as we're thinking about dating, even as we're studying dating. Now, we are going to be talking about some familiar concepts over the next couple weeks, but I pray that even though they're familiar, that the Lord will grant us humility of heart and mind, and that he would continue to grow us all more and more into the image of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, before we um, 
go any further, we're going to read our passage for this evening. You can turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians 4, and then we will uh, pray and commit our time to the Lord. So 1 Thessalonians 4, we're going to start in verse 1. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 1. Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you have received from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. Not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. And that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter. Because the Lord is the avenger in all these things. Just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your word. We are grateful for how it pours truth into our hearts. And I know that though this is a very familiar topic for some of us, the reason why it is familiar is because of previous failures in this area of purity, of pursuing sanctification. And so I pray, Lord, that you would give us much grace, you would give us much hope as we remind ourselves of the hope that is found in your word. Lord, we're grateful that you love broken sinners and that you bring us to yourself. And so we pray, Lord, that you would help us to rejoice in this hope and in these truths this evening. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, just a few years ago in July 2019, a once popular young preacher and writer, Josh Harris, shocked the world by announcing that he and his wife of 20 years were filing for divorce. And shortly following that divorce announcement, Josh renounced Christianity. He said everything that he believes, he no longer believes. And then he apologized for the book that made him famous, at least the main book that made him famous, I Kiss Dating Goodbye. And these string of announcements led to fresh attention and criticism to Josh's book and the so-called purity culture that so heavily leaned on his book as their main textbook. Now, for some, their main complaint about purity culture was that they felt that there was an overemphasis on purity and protecting oneself from impurity. And because of that, they had been robbed of a chance to get to know other people and potentially even get married. Or they were so focused on their purity, they're like, stay away, no dating for me, only courtship, and if you're trying to date me, forget it. Others complained that purity culture had led them to feel guilty about who they were, about how they looked, 
about how they felt. And perhaps that is even some of you here this evening. As your gut clenches with silent fear and guilt as you think about what we're going to be talking about today and how you've failed in this area, knowing that you know, you've secretly, or maybe even not so secretly, have been wrestling with lust. And if that is you this evening, I want to assure you that I am not here to pummel you angrily with the Bible and tell you, stop sinning. What's wrong with you? Don't you get it? I want to come alongside you as an older brother in the faith, a shepherd who loves you and wants you to see that there is hope for true change in the gospel. That even though you may have failed, it is not the end. It is not the end. I will still call you to be pure, yes. But this purity that I am calling to you, calling you to, excuse me, is different from the pharisaical legalism of those who were a part of the former purity culture. This purity I will call you to is to adopt the same righteousness that was given by faith to everyone who believed. Paul had ministered to many people who had once been neck deep in impurity and unrighteousness. And he said to them in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you. But you were washed. But you were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. And so as we dive into 1 Thessalonians 4 this evening, we're going to find three motivations for Christians to pursue a life of purity. Three motivations for Christians to pursue a life of purity. These are standard truths. You might not think of them as motivations, but believe me, the truth is a motivation to get us to move forward. And so we're first going to look at the fact that Christians have been saved by Christ, We've been saved by Christ, Christians have new life, and Christians are called to holiness. These are three truths, but they are three motivations as well. We'll go through them again if you missed it the first time, okay? So the first truth that we're going to look at, the first motivation that we're going to look at uh, for Christians to pursue a life of purity is that Christians have been saved by Christ. Now, Paul's purpose in writing 1 Thessalonians was to encourage and help the young believers in Thessalonica to grow in holiness, especially because they understood that Christ would return soon. And soon, of course, is a relative term. He's still coming soon. We don't know when it will be. And so we also want to join in with the Thessalonians and to be ready or to grow in holiness, knowing that Christ could come at any moment. And as a result, as a result of that, we want to, uh, to, to, to recognize just the joy that is before us as we pursue what God has for us. And so, 
Uh, in chapter 3, Paul was encouraging the people to grow in holiness, and, and he lets them know, not only am I encouraging you to grow in holiness, but I've been praying for you too. Now, here in chapter 4, he is elaborating on how they can grow. Let's look at verse 1. Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. Now, while Paul is an apostle, and he has authority to simply command the Thessalonians to do what he tells them to do, you notice that he's using the words request and exhort to describe how he is asking them to respond. Right, this, this language is firm enough. It's firm enough where we get the hint that there is a command, but there's a gentle authority here that Paul is using. Right? Normally, when the biblical authors are trying to get us to do something, they don't say, we request you to do it. Right? They just tell you to do it. Right? And of course, you do have this exhortation that's here too, right? but the combination of request and exhort is kind of like, it's gentle. It's a, it's a brotherly kind of command that Paul is using here to encourage the Thessalonians to walk and please God. And then the reason why he's not hammering them is because, like we see in that little parenthetical statement, he's recognizing they are walking according to to God's command. They are striving to please God. He knows that. He knows that. And so, because of that, right, because of that, he tells them to excel still more. Now, the fact that these people are walking and pleasing God already implies that they've heard the gospel and they've already begun the process of leaving their former sins behind. And even though that's good, Paul says, hey, Excel still more. Excel still more. The same can be said for many of you here tonight. There are some of you who are here who are doing really well in your faith. You're not perfect. You still have your struggles, but you're doing well. You're walking closely with God. And um, you know, if that's the case, praise the Lord. That's great. Keep at it. Don't get complacent. Don't get lazy. Keep growing more in your faith. Not so that your pastors will be happy or so that you can look good in front of others or even be seen as, a, as an example of maturity and godliness to others. Right? The reason why we encourage you, excel still more, is because you ought to want to. Right? Because you love God, you ought to want to excel still more in your faith so that you can get closer to him. Godliness is a means of great gain. You can get some respect out of it. You can uh, look good in front of others because of it, but that's not the main reason why we encourage you to pursue after godliness. We encourage you to pursue after godliness because the greatest gain that you could ever obtain is God himself. It's God himself. And so even if you have been wrestling with sexual sin, please do not feel defeated. Right, think back to that earlier verse that I shared with you in 1 Corinthians 6. Such were some of you. 
past tense. They are no longer that way. The proper response to feeling defeated by sin or feeling guilty because of the sins that you know you've committed is not to withdraw from God. I know that for some of you, that has been the way that you felt. How can I possibly come to church, come worship God through singing because of what I've done? How can I possibly have hope of any kind of acceptance from God because of the sins that I still wrestle with? And you withdraw and you allow for your guilt to grow and you allow for that guilt to cause you to sink into an even further guilt right? and even further withdrawal. Before you know it, what was a small gap between you and God has become a vast chasm that you cannot pass. You cannot cross over. When you sin, when you fall, don't withdraw. The opposite, draw near. Draw near. First John one nine reminds us that if we are faithful, or if, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just, faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. And so even if you feel absolutely worthless, draw near. Don't withdraw. Draw near. Remember the grace of God, the salvation that he has granted us, the kindnesses that he has shown us. And pursue him in your brokenness, knowing that he delights in bringing sinners to himself. And he delights in restoring them to right relationship with him. Verse 2. As we're reflecting on those truths, right? For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, verse 3, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. See, Paul reminds the Thessalonians why he's, he's asking them to excel still more, even though they're already doing well. Even though some of them might be struggling on the side. Right? They already knew that Jesus had saved them from experiencing the penalty for their sins through his death on the cross. They already knew that. They knew that he bore the wrath of God against all sins, the sins that you and I have committed, on himself, though he himself was innocent. And his death on the cross was not just so that we could be saved from the penalty of sin, right? We could be saved from hell, and then we could be like, woohoo, I can do whatever I want, right? I got my get-out-of-hell-free card, I can do whatever, no, that's not why God saved us. His, his death on the cross was not so that we could just get our get-out-of-the-hell-free card and then do whatever our heart pleases until the day he takes us home. Rather, what we see in Romans 6, 1-2, Paul, Paul's asking that hypothetical question, um, answering that hypothetical question, should we sin more since God gives us more grace while we sin? Paul answers, what shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin 
so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? You see, our union with Christ in salvation means that we are no longer held prisoner by our sins. You are no longer a prisoner. We are still capable of sinning, yes, but you do not have to give in to that sin. You do not have to give in to that sin. No matter how strong that desire might be, as it is clawing at your chest, as it is clawing at your gut, no matter how strong that feeling may be, you do not have to give in to sin because of the salvation that we have in Christ. And and the commandments that Paul's referencing... um, when, when uh, he's talking about how he's given them the commandments of God, right? These aren't just commandments that came from their own opinions. It's not just Paul's opinion that you ought to, uh, that you ought to be holy. It's not Paul's opinion that you ought to strive to be sanctified. Rather, what they are teaching the Thessalonians comes through the authority, through the authority of Jesus, through the authority of Jesus. And so, as we look at verse 3, right, we see in part what was given to the Thessalonians. Basically, everything that was taught to the Thessalonians can be summarized as God's desire for their sanctification, right? And that's broad, because right, sanctification includes God's desire for people to love him more, to love each other, and for them to grow in uh, Christ-likeness and, and other things as well. And even though sanctification can refer to that wider range of Christian practices that bring us closer to Christ, Paul, he's zeroing in on a very specific application of that sanctification, that we abstain from sexual immorality, right? Keep away from sexual immorality. And that should lead us to a question. Why does Paul focus specifically on abstaining from sexual immorality as God's will for our lives, right? Surely there are more things that are God's will for our lives. Well, the answer is found in the specifics of the culture that the Thessalonians lived in. And as I was studying it, I realized this culture is not unlike ours today. You see, the Greek and Roman culture that influenced the people of Thessalonica were, uh, was incredibly sexually immoral. Not only in the eyes of God, but even in the, people, in the eyes of the people who lived in it. And th- this was their way of life. This was how their society functioned. You see, they worshipped a lot of different gods. Not just Greek, not just Roman, but they even had some Egyptian gods in there as well. A lot of different gods are, are, uh, are being worshipped in, uh, in these Greek cities. And as a part of their worship, many of these false gods that demanded worship incorporated, incorporated sex with priests or priestesses as a part of their worship. So sexual immorality was a part of the very fabric of worship for them. Right? But 
their culture was way more permissive as well. It's, just, it's not just in the sphere of temple worship, but it, it went outside too. It was you know, sex out of marriage, adultery, homosexuality, pedophilia, bestiality, and much more. One Roman philosopher even commented, let not pleasures always be forbidden. Let desire and pleasure triumph sometimes over reason. But only if these pleasures do not do damage to oneself or others. A Roman philosopher said that. Does that sound familiar to you guys? It should. It should sound familiar to you because that's essentially what we say today. People should be free to do whatever they wish as long as they don't hurt anybody. Pursue whatever desire they wish as long as they don't hurt anybody. That's what we hear today. Love is love. Who cares? As long as it's not hurting nobody, it doesn't matter. So you see, because of that culture, because of how normal it was, for sexual immorality to be a part of their lives. Paul had to single out and explain what sexual immorality was because they had a very limited idea of what even constituted sexual immorality. And in a sense, this is, this, this is our culture too. Right? This is our culture too. Now, now, we do have the benefit of having some Christian influence on our nation's founding. Right? That allowed for us to have maybe a little, some morals baked into uh, to our founding uh, of, of this nation. But, but we are sliding into a time where any teaching on the importance of purity before God is seen as a threat to the good of society and individuals everywhere. It's almost unthinkable to modern people that anyone should or would practice self-control when it comes to their sexual desires so long as no one gets hurt. But what Paul wants his readers to understand, what he wants us to understand, is that because of the salvation that has been given to us by Christ, we have a new standard of living a new way of living because we have been delivered from the old life, the old culture, which had enslaved us and made us enemies of God. As Paul writes in Colossians 1, 13 to 14, for he, that is Christ, rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. Because we've been delivered from a lifestyle that is in direct opposition to God's holy perfection, we should not try to go back to our former lifestyle. Rather, we should try and grow in the areas that God wants us to grow so we can get closer to him. We're going to discuss this a little bit more in our message, but the main thing that we want to remember right now is that our first motivation to pursue a life of purity, is built entirely on the reality that we've been saved from our sins by Christ. Because of that, we want to push forward. We want to become more like him. Now, our second motivation to pursue a life of purity has been uh, touched on a little bit already, uh, but it is that Christians have new life. Christians have new life. So because 
of the salvation that we have in Christ, we naturally have a new life in him. Now, I am sure much of this section is review for many of you, but the reason why we're reviewing this is because our sanctification, our gradual transformation to be like Christ, it's important to God. But what does it look like? If it's important to God that we abstain from sexual immorality, what does it look like to do that? Verse 4 and 5. That each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. So Paul, he sets up a contrast for us to understand what it will look like to keep away from sexual sin by first establishing positively what it will look like. Right? Positively, each one of us should know how to possess his own vessel, or another word we could use is our own bodies, in sanctification and honor. Now, Paul, more likely than not, had men more in mind here than he did for women because Greek society gave more sexual freedoms to the men than it did the women, but it doesn't mean that the women are exempt from this command. Every single person who heard Paul's letter or read Paul's letter, is responsible for knowing how to control their own bodies and their own desires. And this knowledge that we are to all have of ourselves is a knowledge that comes from learning, get this, learning how to understand ourselves. Learning how to understand ourselves. Not love yourself so that you know how to love other people, okay? Not that, not that business. Right? But knowing how to dig deep into your heart and understanding what you find when you do dig up stuff in your heart. Okay? We tend not to put much thought into knowing how our hearts work, especially when it comes to our desire. And this is not exclusive to us. This is something that We've not been taught all of our lives. Uh, when I was working with some middle schoolers um, at, uh, at a Christian school here in the city, and one of them was doing some crazy stuff, and uh, his friends had recorded him doing those crazy things on their phones. And he runs up to me almost in tears and says, Mr. Jong, Mr. Jong, they recorded me doing something. Can you tell them to delete it from their phones? And I was like, let me ask you something. Why are you so ashamed of what they recorded you doing? Because you knew they were recording. Why did you do it if you knew they were going to record? Typical middle school answer, I don't know. For us, it's not dissimilar. Why is it that you gave in to the temptation to look at those things that you were not supposed to look at, that you know you're not supposed to look at? Why is it that you went to that part of the city where you know there's nothing but trouble? Why did you go there? Why did you do that? That's our typical answer. That's our typical answer. 
And we struggle knowing why we do these things. We struggle knowing our own hearts. Right? And we can even remove this from the context of sexual sin too. Right? Why is it that you responded with explosive anger to the person who's been annoying you for the last few hours? Why is it when you got cut off on the freeway that you decided you were going to tailgate them and honk them and give them the finger? Why did you do that? I don't know. Something just came up over me. I couldn't understand. It just, it just happened. It all happened so fast. You see, we don't know our hearts as well as we think we do. And because we struggle to understand our own hearts and what particularly tempts us to sin, it becomes a lot harder to know how to control ourselves or how to, how to grow ourselves to become more like Christ and to be honorable and respectful people. And so we have to work to know our own hearts because if we just have a general idea of what our issue is, we're going to have a hard time changing. Randy Patton puts it this way, you cannot change in the fuzzies. If you have a fuzzy idea of what your sins are and what makes you tempted to do those sins, you're only going to have a fuzzy idea of how you're going to change. If I were, you know, even if we were to skip ahead to the application section, right, and, and if the application question was, how can you grow more holy, right? How can you become more sanctified? And your answer is, um, read the Bible, pray. Oh, <laughs> good job, me. Right, read the Bible and pray. Right, if that's your answer, you're not technically wrong, but that's also not helpful. Right, it's not helpful. Because what are you going to read? And what are you going to pray? And what are you going to do? If you want freedom, if we want freedom, if we want to know how to put on self-control, which you all know, by the way, is a fruit of the Spirit, then we need to know what is going on inside of our hearts. See, too often, we only focus on dealing with the behavior. But our behavior is only an indication of what is happening inside our hearts. Quickly, let's look at Matthew 5, 27 to 28. Right, Jesus says this, you have, heard it, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus' words show us that even in his day, people were going around thinking that they were obeying God, uh, uh, obeying God's command not to commit adultery simply because they weren't committing the physical act of adultery. But Jesus shows us that not committing adultery physically does not mean that you're obeying God's command. The heart of the adulterer and the heart of the one who lusts is, are, are, are the very same. One has decided to act on it, and the other one has not. But the hearts are the same. They're the same. 
Is that not devastating? Is that not devastating? That you can obey God's command as it's written, but in your heart still fail to be obedient? Does that not blow up any sense of self-righteousness we might have? See, even if your struggle is not sexual lust, but is anger, bitterness, pride, worry, anxiety, Matthew 5, you just look at all those things that Jesus says, you've heard it said, but truly I say to you, if you look at all those statements, right, Matthew 5 devastates any concept of our ability to make ourselves righteous because our behavior, the things that we do outside of us, that's not the problem. That's not the problem. The problem is in here. The problem is in our hearts. In Jeremiah 17, 9 to 10, God says, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. See, we cannot trust our hearts and our own justifications because we're going to give ourselves a free pass or we're going to come down a little lighter on ourselves. Right? It's, not, it's not my problem. It's the problem with the people around me. It's the problem with the world around me. It's not my fault that I struggle with this sin of, of sexual lust. It's the sexualization of the culture. Right? If we could fix that, then I won't have to struggle with this anymore. That's what we, what we might be tempted to say. Some of us may even be tempted to argue that the problem lies with God. God, I prayed to you. I asked you with tears to help me. To help me flee from this sin. To deliver me so that I am no longer guilty. Why are you not helping me? The problem is not with God. The problem is still with us. God doesn't obey for you. He enables you to obey. He helps you obey, but he does not obey for you. Right? And even if you weren't so bold as to say it's God's fault, right? perhaps, perhaps we place the blame on conservative Christian values. That's who the, who's the blame. It's MacArthur and all those people like him. They make us feel guilty for what comes naturally to us. This is who I am. Do not listen. Do not listen to the lies of your heart, nor the lies of the world. They're not to be trusted because of the effects of sin on this world. So as you think about these things, that our hearts are the problem, right, does that not blow up all hope of us knowing our hearts so that we can possess our bodies in sanctification and honor? Does it? No. No. 
It doesn't. Proverbs 25, 20, verse 5, excuse me, says this. A plan in the heart of a, of a man is like deep water, but a man of understanding draws it out. So where do we, where do we get this understanding to draw out the plans, the, the purposes, the desires of our hearts? How do we know what's inside our hearts? Well, it's from God. Right? God is the one who provides us with the wisdom that we need to navigate life. Think back to the Proverbs. Think back to the Proverbs. Where is the beginning of wisdom found? And through the fear of the Lord. Right? Awe and worship, respect of God. And that's the beginning of wisdom. That's how you know what's going on in your own hearts. It starts with God. It starts with his word. And so as you look back at 1 Thessalonians 4 and you take a quick peek at verse 8, right? how does God help us understand wisdom in our own hearts? It's through the Holy Spirit. Right? It's the gift of the Holy Spirit that he has given us. See, contrary to what some people may have told you, and I know what they mean when they say this, right? but, but contrary to what what others may have told you. God does not ask you to do hard things, things that you are unable to bear without giving you the tools that you need to do his will. And some people fight against that and say like, no, it's too much for me. Right? What do you mean God doesn't give me more than I can handle? Right? God, God, God can only give me what I can handle, otherwise I'll die. Right? I know what they mean. I know what they're trying to do. I respect that. What I want to say to you is, no, you can. Okay? You can endure when God gives you a little bit more than you can handle. It's not because of you. It's because of the Holy Spirit. See, when, when we talk about the things that we cannot handle, this is a bit of a tangent, but when we talk about the things that we cannot handle, perhaps it's the loss of a loved one. Perhaps it's a dream that has been ripped away from you or a quality of life issue that you will no longer have. Initially, on its face, it seems like life is over, isn't, doesn't it? It might seem like that, And if it really was too much for you to handle, then you have no hope. You might as well just become like an ostrich and stick your head in the sand and just wait for Jesus to come back. But you see, the graciousness of our God, the kindness of our God to give us the Holy Spirit enables us to endure so that you are not crushed when those bad times come. Right? You might be pressed down, but you are not crushed. You are not destroyed. Right? God can help you endure, even when it seems like there's too much for you to handle. And so, even when it comes to fighting sin, right? when it comes to fighting sin, yes, it might be hard and seemingly out of your ability to do the kind of things that God wants you to do, to flee from the temptations that claw at your heart. It might seem that way, 
but with the Holy Spirit's help, with, with the knowledge that Christ is praying for you and that God is the one who gives you the strength to do what is right, we are able to do the things that God asks of us. It's not hopeless. It's not impossible. You can do it because of God. And this is in contrast to the Gentiles, right? This is our negative example. You can positively learn how to control yourself because of, the, of God, because of the Holy Spirit. The negative example, the, the Gentiles, or in this case, the unbelievers, right? The reason why they can't do it is because they don't know God, right? That's what he says in verse 5. They don't know God. Because of their lack of knowledge of God, they give themselves over to their lustful passions. For people who do not know God, both in the day that Paul was writing and even now, any source of morality is based upon cultural norms. Right? What is acceptable now? What does a society say is okay? What does society say is right? And it's for this reason that many of the people who live in this world around us have shifted in their stances on whether homosexuality, transgenderism, and polyamory are acceptable. These are the things that you hear in the news. Some people wonder, how did we get here? How did we get here? What happened to our culture? You see, it's not just because, see, some people are trying to be really simplistic, and they're saying, it's because we took prayer out of school. That's the reason why. No. It's not because we took prayer out of school. That, that kind of false morality by imposing the scriptures on other people, that will never save anybody. And that will never save a culture. But what we fail to do is connect hearts to God. But see, these hearts are not connected to God. And so, it shifts. Right? Oh wait, I'm supposed to be a loving person. I'm supposed to be a kind person. And my best friend tells me that he's in love with a man. If I love him, I should accept him as he is. Right? And so, the culture shifts. So, the thoughts shift. It shifts because the passions of the people within society, push back against the societal norms until the societal norms change, until the societal norms adapt. The lustful passions of unbelievers dictate not only what they believe, but also how they will act and how they will try to coerce others to accept them and to act like that as well. Why do you think they are pushing homosexuality, and transgenderism in kindergarten and in preschool. Why do you think they're doing that? Because they don't want for Christian morality, Christian teaching to come in when they're young and to cause them to reject their form of morality. Or they're trying to normalize it when they're young so that when they grow up, they're looking at you and they're like, what's wrong with you? This is normal. This is acceptable. This is right. You are illogical, irrational, bigoted, hateful. They're ruled by their passions and they try and encourage other people to do the same. But you and I, 
We've been freed from this life that is ruled by our passions. Peter writes in 1 Peter 13, 1, 13 to 16, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. You see, life is different now that we have a saving relationship with God. We no longer live in our ignorance, but we can live by God's truth. Whenever we used to live by the passions of our heart, every single sinful action that we committed earned us more and more of God's wrath against sin. But because of the newness of life that we have in Christ, because of the forgiveness that has been made possible by Jesus' death and resurrection, you and I are no longer resigned to continue to live a life where we earn death for ourselves, where we continue to earn for ourselves eternal wrath against sin. We're freed from that. We've been delivered from that. We have life in Christ. And because of that, we can be holy as God is holy. So, uh, anyways, in addition to having self-control, abstaining from sexual immorality, it also incorporates something else, right? One more thing. And it incorporates respect for fellow believers and God. Verse 6, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things. Just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. You see, if we know that the person who stands before us does not belong to us because we're not married to them, then we should strive to treat them with dignity and respect, knowing that they could very well be someone else's future spouse. Okay, so even if, you, even if you both really, really, really like each other and you cannot see a future without one another, there is a possibility for something to happen that will not allow you to move forward in the relationship. Right? And if, Lord forbid, that happen, but you've done something with that person that only married spouses ought to do, You've not just sinned against that person. You've also sinned against whoever will be this person's future spouse. And of course, we've also, as we see in Psalm 51, we've sinned against God too. Right? But back to the other person's future spouse, right? You've cheated that future spouse of something that belongs to them and them alone. And so if sinning against another person by taking something that belongs to them does not stop you in your tracks when it comes to how you think about treating a brother or a sister that you're interested in. Consider the scarier person that you are held accountable to. Jesus. 
the Lord is the avenger in all these things. He takes the side of the one who was taken advantage of. He is the one who cares about justice. And as we can see with those final, with those final words, those, in those final two lines, this is not new to the Thessalonians to the Thessalonians. Right? They were told this before, but apparently someone or some, some people did not take that warning seriously because they had to be warned again not to engage in sexual sin with other people right? because God, because Christ is the avenger in all these things. Right? So knowing that Jesus will allow you to experience the consequences of your sin as disciplinary judgment. Right? This is not final judgment if you're saved. Right? This is not final judgment, but it is disciplinary judgment. Right? Knowing that he will discipline you if you do step out and do something that you're not supposed to do, right? that should remind you of the great seriousness that, that Jesus takes this issue. Or the seriousness with which he defends his church and defends his people. And even if your sin was not directly against a person who is a believer, perhaps it's, a, it's an unbeliever, right? the person on the other side is still made in the image of God. He still desires for that person, even if they are doing it of their own choice, for that person to repent of their sins and to be saved. So, knowing the great price that Christ paid to free us from our sins, to give us new and to give us new life, we ought to be motivated to do the things that please him. Right? To to not take advantage of other people, to not defraud people, to not transgress against them when it comes to taking from them something that only belongs to their future spouse. We must act with self-control according to our lustful passions. We ought to strive to live according to the new life that we've been given. Right? What are those lustful passions that we've been that we have, replace that with godliness. Replace that with godly action because we've been given new life. And so that leads us to our third and, and final motivation for why Christians should pursue a life of purity. And it's because we are called, Christians are called to holiness. Christians are called to holiness. Verse seven, for God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. Okay, we touched on this earlier. God doesn't save us so that we can just run around doing whatever we want. We might do that, but he doesn't save us so that we could explicitly do that. He called us to a new life as he transferred us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son, Jesus. Because we are saved, because we are given new life, we are called to live a holy life. And yes, we will at times wrestle with the sin that remains in our hearts. And that wrestling will happen until the day that, that we are fully transformed into Christ-likeness when Jesus comes back. Right? But brothers and sisters, the worth of what we have in Christ does not mean that we ought to uh, give up on pursuing Christ-likeness. 
even if it's difficult to pursue. All right, so, I'm so sorry. Even if it's difficult to pursue, it doesn't mean that it's not worth it. Even if you find yourself lazy, ah, it seems like too much work to pursue godliness, right? It's still worth it because of the worth of Christ. And that's what I meant. Sorry. Word jumbles. All right. Right? Even if it's difficult to pursue, it is worth following after Christ. Even if it sucks having to die to self, it is worth following after Christ. Let's look at what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27. He says this, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not with, without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Prize that we run for in this life as believers is the prize of God Himself. Right? He is our highest good, our highest treasure. And if Olympic athletes are willing to train their ent- entire lives just to compete on an international stage for a few moments of glory and a hunk of metal, then should we as Christians not be willing? to discipline ourselves for the sake of obtaining God himself? And we should. We should. Or should we not be willing to die to self, die to sinful desire, so that we may please our king who saved us so that we can be with him for all of eternity? God is going to bring us who are true believers to himself eventually. Right? That is true. But we remind ourselves of God's calling for us because sometimes it's easy, especially if you are caught up in your sins. If you find yourselves ensnared and entangled by your sins to get lazy about pursuing godliness. Okay? It can be easy to forget that God actually calls you to fight sin, not roll over. Right? Fight, not roll over. It can be easy to forget that he still cares about how we live our lives. And that's the point that Paul makes in verse 8 when he writes, So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. See, someone could have possibly made the argument, Paul, I don't got to listen to you. This is all your opinion. This is all your opinion. I know Jesus loves me. I know Jesus will not judge me. I know he loves me and accepts me as I am. So I'm going to live as I want. Every reality TV Christian ever. But Paul makes it really, really clear here that what he was teaching is not just his opinion, but it is God's commands. The same God in the Old Testament who commanded the people of Israel to be holy as he is holy is the same God who reminds Christians that his will for them is their sanctification. Anyone who rejects Paul's teaching, whether in practice or in, de- or, uh, in, in, in their words, They're not just rejecting Paul. 
They're rejecting God. And like I said earlier, it's not like God's just demanding holiness from people when they're unable to be holy. God is the one who gives his Holy Spirit to us so that we can live holy lives. And we see that in John 14, 26. The Holy Spirit, he's called the helper. He teaches us all things. He brings into our remembrance all that Jesus has said. You can also see it in John 16, 13. The Holy Spirit is described as the spirit of truth who will guide us into all truth. Because of the Holy Spirit's work in our lives, we will produce the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. There is no such thing as a Christian who does not produce the fruit of the Spirit. Right? Fruit singular. All of those things that are listed in the fruit of the Spirit will be produced all at the same time, in varying degrees to another, right? but, but all at the same time in someone who is actually a Christian. God did not leave us here to figure it out on our own, to figure out Christianity on our own, to figure out holiness on our own, but he has given us his spirit so that we can grow in holiness. And since our God has graciously uh, given us his spirit to help us in growing in holiness, right, we ought to strive, right, be motivated to strive, to discipline ourselves for the sake of godliness so that we can be more godly. Well, as we conclude tonight, I'm sure that even as we've studied these three motivations for Christians to pursue a life of purity, much of it was review. You're probably, like, eh, yeah, yeah, I know that, I know that, I know that, I know that. Right? You know that God has already saved us through Christ. You know that you've been given a new life. And you know that you've been called to holiness. But even if you did not learn anything brand new this evening, I hope that the reminder of God's desire for us to be a holy people will cause your hearts to rejoice in thankfulness to God for the salvation which he has given us. Right? He didn't have to, but he did. Right? Through the gospel, God changed the facts on the ground. We were in the middle of spiritual warfare. We were running our hell-bound race as hard and as fast as we could but God changed the facts on the ground with Christ so that we could have forgiveness of sin so that we could be adopted into his family. That's what God did for us in salvation. And because of that, he's truly worthy of our adoration, of our worship, and our obedience. Right? So if anything, we can be more thankful to God for those things. Right? If you are here to this evening and you are a Christian, but you are wrestling with sexual sin in some form, please know that there is so much hope for you. There is so much hope for you. Remember those words, right? Such were some of you. Victory can be found in the Lord. Right? You are not alone, but you can use the provisions, the gifts that God has given you, and his word, prayer, the church, serving. Right? You can all use these provisions, these, these gifts that God has given to you to fight. And we're going to explore more of that in detail in the coming weeks. But I, I, just want to, I just want to close with 
this comforting thought. God has compassion on broken sinners. And he didn't save you because you were perfect. He knows you're not. He knows you're messed up. He knows I'm messed up. He knows that you're unworthy. If you feel unworthy for salvation because of your sin, it's because you are. I'm not going to sugarcoat it for you. You are unworthy. I'm unworthy. Every single person in this room, even the nicest person that you can think about in this room or in this world, we are all unworthy of salvation. But God chose to set his love on you. He chose to save you, not because you deserved it, but because he had already determined that he was going to love you. He was determined that he would adopt you into his family and that he would conform you to the image of his son. He will help you grow in godliness. He's promised that. I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. So do not give up. Lean in on him. Ask him for help to grow and change. And come up with that plan on how to put off, put on. And, and maybe even reach out to some fellow believers to help you pursue God. Let's pray. Our Father, we're grateful uh, for your word. Even though much of what we've learned today was familiar truths, we are grateful knowing that the holiness that you require of us, that you demand of us, is a holiness that you are grace-giving to us, that you will help us get there. For hearts that are discouraged this evening, I pray that you would comfort them with the reminder of your love with the reminder of your compassion, of your grace. And though they may not be willing to accept the fact that you would dare to love them, though they are unworthy, we pray that you would use your word, that you would use fellow brothers and sisters to help them repent of their pride and to recognize they don't have to forgive themselves. You never ask us to forgive ourselves. You ask us to ask you for forgiveness and to receive it. And so we pray that, Lord, you would help us, that you would break us of our pride and that you would help us to remember, oh, the sweet joy it is to have your gracious salvation. Thank you, Father, for this time. It's your son's and we pray. Amen.